Father, we thank you for your word, how it enlightens us. It brings us to the places we need to be. And Father, for those times we are resistant, we ask that you would just prompt us over and over as you are prone to do by the gentleness of your spirit. We would pray, Lord, that you would provide for us insight and wisdom beyond our years today as we look at these pages. And we had asked, Lord, that you would not only bless us with it, but help us to retain this information that we might use it in such a way to bring others into the kingdom or to provide wisdom and insight to those who seek it. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, Paul continues uh, a thought that he began in the last chapter. Some were upset that he had changed his travel plans, that he was accused of being untrustworthy and double-minded. And Paul, on his previous visit, he had caused much pain and sorrow, both for himself and the members of the church. And he made up his mind not to return until some of the issues had been resolved. So he came and he delivered either some rebukes or admonishment to the people that were in the church. We don't know exactly what he did. But he installed some sort of discipline and delivered the rebukes and, like I said, some strong admonishments at the very least. He did express that he continued in his love for the believers at Corinth and believed that another visit might cause them harm rather than good. And that's why he delayed or postponed his return visit to them. And it appears he felt that writing a letter and giving the believers in Corinth time to repent would be better than making that uh, personal visit. So in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 1, we pick it up there. He says, So I made up my mind that I would not make another painful visit to you, for if I grieve you, who is left to make me glad? But you whom I have grieved. I wrote as I did so that when I came, I should not be distressed by those who ought to make me rejoice. I had confidence in all of you that you would all share my joy. So there were those inside the church that he should have been pleased and encouraged by, and yet he would have shown up and delivered, again, probably some more stern admonishments or even rebukes. He wrote in verse 4 here, For I wrote you out of great distress and anguish of heart, and with many tears, not to grieve you, but to let you know the depth of my love for you. Now, when Paul talks about writing this letter, we don't have that letter today. There were a total of probably four letters that we know of that were exchanged in this particular segment, going back and forth, dealing with whatever problems were in the church of Corinth, but we only have two. One of them seems to combine uh, two or one letter uh, in particular and a partial in Second Corinthians chapter, um, or not the chapters, but in Second Corinthians. It's like it's a conglomeration of a couple of letters put together. But there were four total. And Paul wrote dozens, maybe even hundreds of letters during his time in ministry. And we only have maybe 13 of them. And this was a common habit back then that leaders of the church, they would send letters to each other. And that's how we actually got the Gospels and all the epistles that are there. And we know the authors, and they usually proclaim who they are. Hebrews is in question, but uh, I believe Paul wrote Hebrews as well. Now, those books or those letters have all been delivered to us, and they are the scriptures that we hold to today. If anyone, in verse 5, has caused me grief, he has not so much grieved me as he has grieved all of you to some extent, not to put it too severely. The punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient for him. Now, instead, you ought to forgive and comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I urge you, therefore, to reaffirm your love for him. So this is something that is ongoing inside the church. There's an individual who has sinned, The church got together and delivered a rebuke and probably excommunicated him for a while and said, we're not going to have any fellowship with you while you were in this sin. Many scholars believe that this is the individual who was sleeping with his father's wife, an incestuous relationship. Back in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, we don't know if in fact that is true. That is the speculation that is out there. But whoever this man was in the church as a body... They acted as a unit, as one in purpose, and they imposed this discipline on him, and they removed him. Now it appears this man, he had, at this particular point, repented. But the church was just beating them over the head after that. 
It's like, you know, I'm sorry, what do you want me to do? And they said, it's not good enough. And, and they were not accepting him back into the church after he repented. And Paul encouraged them all to be merciful towards this brother, to let him back in. In this case, uh, to the condition of forgiveness and restoration, there is a condition for that, and it is contingent upon repentance. Now, Psalm 51, verse 17 tells us, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. And we know that this individual was repentant. Second Corinthians, <clears throat> excuse me, chapter seven, verse ten says, "Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation, and leaves no regret." But worldly sorrow brings death. And so he encouraged them instead of being so harsh with this individual. It's almost like you know, with us, when somebody does something wrong and, and discipline gets imposed, we almost want to cause some more pain and suffering so they learn their lesson that they'll never return to it again. We do this in our courts. If, if somebody has a grievance against somebody else, they have been wrong, they can go to court and they can sue them. But then there's an additional pain and suffering that has been incurred because you did this. And that can be even more than the original transgression for which they receive a reward. And I think that's going a little beyond because who has not offended somebody? Who has not uh, wronged somebody else? And when they repent, do you seek to repay them double or ten times what they have done to you? And we know that we're not supposed to do that. Now, In verse 9, it continues here, The reason I wrote you was to see if you would stand the test and be obedient in everything. If you forgive anyone, I also forgive him. And what I have forgiven, if there is anything to forgive, I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake, in order that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. So inside the church, and we have to keep this in context of what's going on in 1 Corinthians and in 2 Corinthians and what was going on in the culture at the day and inside the church. If you remember, a lot of people that got saved, they were Jews. Now in the Old Testament, if you committed certain sins, you were cast out of the camp if you were wandering around in the wilderness. You were not allowed to come back in. You were forever forsaken. You were kicked out of fellowship with the nation of Israel. And there were Judaizers inside the church. And so they were probably carrying this over. If a sin has been committed that is so egregious, you're done, you're out, you cannot be received back into fellowship. Now that's not how Christ works and that's not how the church works. But a couple of things on this matter of what's going on with restoring this guy. Paul told them that he wanted to see if they would be obedient, if they had followed through. It was kind of like a test for them. And he was concerned that Satan might outwit the entire body through lack of unity. Paul places unity in a very high place of importance. He wanted to be unified with the Corinthians rather than be harsh and overbearing with them, coming, coming back in and saying, you guys need to accept them. What happened to the grace of God? You could see how Paul could just go after, especially the leadership inside the church, and, and just kind of horsewhip them verbally, not literally, but it would be very egregious for him to have to do that over again. All this was done so that Satan would not be able to come in and divide the people. So it deals with this issue of forgiveness. They were unforgiving. In verse 10, it says, if you forgive anyone, I also forgive him. And and as Paul wrote that, you also have to take the opposite to bring understanding. In other words, if you don't forgive anyone, I also don't forgive him. So he's relying on the church to install forgiveness, to examine the criteria, is there repentance so that reconciliation and uh, bringing back into fellowship can take place once again. And so we know that there are times where forgiveness is not extended. For instance, the person who curses Christ all their life, they will not be forgiven. And there are positions, and I I touched on this back when we were in Matthew, this idea of forgiveness. And there's the world's view of forgiveness. I think they do a pretty good job on this. And I I talked to you about it, Dr. Stephen Marmer from UCLA, a, a psychiatrist. He gave three descriptions of forgiveness. One is exoneration, the other is forbearance, and the other is release. Three different ways that we forgive. And of course, exoneration is restoring a relationship to the full state of innocence, getting rid of all anger, hurt, and pain. 
uh, a genuine accident where you see there is no fault that can be assigned. Something just happened, and maybe there was an offense that came as a result, and you seek that forgiveness, and the forgiveness is given. The offense committed against another unknowingly or innocently can be a result from being like a child or acting like a child or being immature. And then restoration takes place when someone admits their fault or sin. They take full responsibility with no excuses, and they seek after and request genuine forgiveness. Now, I don't know about you, but this has happened to me in my life where I either had to extend forgiveness or receive forgiveness from somebody else. And you go to them and say, you know, I'm, I'm so sorry for what I did. I acted out of ignorance. I was being childlike. I, I was not thinking, and will you please forgive me for that? And when that takes place, that's exoneration. And there should be no ill feelings as a result of that. You should be able to walk away, treat the person just as you would have before the offense took place. And that's what God desires. And then there will be no repeat of that particular sin, whatever it might have been, or that transgression. Then there's the forbearance. I think this is where most of us reside when it comes to forgiveness. There is this partial apology. Usually it is mingled with blame. Well, you know, forgive me for this, but you know, you were to blame. If, if you hadn't done this particular thing, I wouldn't have reacted. And that's, that's a partial apology. That's partial forgiven, forgiveness. It is inauthentic is what it is. We want to justify ourselves in the midst of asking forgiveness. The offended individual will not feel as if the situation has been resolved when we do that. They walk away just kind of, well, they apologize, but, you know, I still don't feel right on the inside. And they must make an attempt to avoid having ill feelings when they are confronted with the individual again. And contempt, desires, and holding a grudge, all of those seem to make their way back to the individual who was offended to the one who said, well, you were partially to blame, you know, and, and you, oh, maybe I was partially to They don't feel any better when it's all done. And there's always a sense of watchfulness or caution. There is always a holding back. There will no longer be openness in the relationship. And you can forgive, but it is extremely difficult to forget. I remember 25 years ago when you did this to me. And I will always have that in the back of my mind. And I'll be cordial. I'll say hi to you. I'll even give you a hug and smile when you are there. But I remember. I remember what happened. And that's a result of the disingenuousness of the individual seeking the forgiveness and also the one extending it. We just, we want to be justified. We want to say, I was right and why can't you recognize that? Uh, that's the person with the eye disease. And, and God, you know, we, God was completely innocent going to the cross and Jesus Christ and he doesn't do that to us. He doesn't come to us and say, well, you're the one that killed me. He, he doesn't say that. He just says, no, I'm extending grace to you. Now, I know this is probably the most difficult task for us to do because we are easily offended on the inside. And, and these, maybe somebody said so many different things that were bad against you to others and they were murmuring and they were complaining and they were gossiping. And all of that takes place. It's just our task to move beyond that once there is this apology even it seems as if it's disingenuous we need to say you know what who am i how many people have i offended how many people have i erred against or sinned against and so i need to be able to just put my chin up look towards god and say god help me to forget what is going on just as god forgets our sin places it as far as the east is from the west and then there is the release. I don't think this is biblical here. <clears throat> I mentioned this before when we were in Matthew. There is no recognition of sin or offense or the person has died and cannot be contacted. If somebody comes to you or to me and they say, you need to ask my forgiveness, and you turn to them and say, that's your problem, not mine. <laughs> Boy, you need to rethink what you're talking about. I have nothing to do with this whatsoever. And, and that's where the person has to walk away and say, well, I forgive you anyhow. 
I'm forcing forgiveness on you. It, that's not how biblical forgiveness works. And how does this happen? Well, there could have been child abuse, betrayal, business relationships gone south because of an unscrupulous boss or a business partner, and we are ruined financially, something like that. <clears throat> Take our current climate. It just Patty just told me today that a whole group of theaters are closing down. They may open up um, this next year. We don't know. But they're closing down. So the person who is in charge of that business, who would they look to to blame for this? Would they hold it in their heart forever, those who shut down the economy? And who did that exactly? And who is the focal point? Who can be the, the, take the brunt of your criticism and that you can forever point at and say, it's you, you did this. And see, that's where we're so focused on ourselves and we don't see the overall plan of God. Now, going on with this, and I'll come back to it a little bit later. And all we can do is, or excuse me, all one can do is choose not to act on the impulses of revenge when this type of forgiveness is extended, this release. Well, I just forgive you. And so the individual on the inside has to constantly say, yeah, they're the one that offended me. I shouldn't take revenge. I will repay, say it, the Lord. And they're constantly working on that. The relationship is never the same, but that's how they choose to do it. And Scripture actually instructs us to do this if it is at all possible. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 31 says, Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling, and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Now remember the church, they were unwilling to forgive. And Paul is saying, no, forgive each other, especially when you see the repentance which is there. So those who would say, well, you just forgive them even though you can't make contact with them, Biblical, biblical forgiveness is a two-way street. What happens in this particular case, it's really a form of mercy rather than forgiveness. Mercy is not giving someone what they deserve and being able to walk away. True forgiveness, like I said, is a two-way street. Two, forgiveness is something, that the goal of it is to restore relationship. That's what forgiveness is all about. And anything else... It's just seeking after personal contentment and happiness. Now, when did God say, I want you to seek personal contentment and happiness? He never said that. He said, oh, it's a privilege for you to suffer for me. Oh, how much personal contentment and happiness is in that? You know, doing the will of God. He never commanded us to do that. Now, uh, our founding documents say we have the right to pursue happiness, which is true. We do, and we can when we're able. But as far as Christ and his economy is concerned, the goal is not seeking happiness and fulfillment. The goal is fulfilling God's will. That's what we're supposed to do. So uh, let's go on to verse 12. You know, um, no, that's verse 12. Now, when I was in Troas to preach the gospel of Christ and found that the Lord had opened a door for me, I still had no peace of mind because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I said goodbye to them and went on to Macedonia. Now, this idea of an open door. Uh, how do you know it's an open door? Well, you might say, well, the door's open. I can go. And what about people pushing open doors or barricades which may be there how do you know specifically if god has opened a door just because there is an open door it doesn't mean you must walk through it now in this particular case paul did he walked through it he had a chance when he went to troas to preach the gospel of christ and he found that a door had been opened to him in other words there were those who received the gospel now, when we're doing anything as a believer or as a minister for Christ, we go out there, we look for the open doors. Uh, to give you an example of this, <clears throat> one year we went to, uh, a few of us went to Israel. On the flight over to Israel, we were just going to see some sites. We were going to visit a refugee school for kids 
that had been brought from all over the world that were Jews. They were from Africa. They were from uh, Russia. They were all in the same school. There were hundreds of kids there. And a check was being brought to them by another ministry that we had gone with, and they were going to give them $5,000 for computers uh, to help them there. But on the flight over, one of the guys in our group sat next to a professor from Haifa University. Haifa University is a city in Israel. It's up on a hill. The university is up on a hill. It overlooks the little bay area in Haifa there. They have a nuclear power plant down there. Some of the photos, if you look them up on Google, they don't show the nuclear power plant, but they have one there. And anyhow, a conversation took place between this guy who went with us as another pastor and this professor. And at the time that we were flying over remember the passion of christ by mel gibson gibson that was made and there was this idea that it was anti-semitic and so they started having a conversation about that she invited our whole group to go to the university of haifa and talk with professors and students there and so we had an open door we said we're going to go talk to a bunch of jews at haifa university in a classroom that is there and people are going to come and they can ask us questions and we'll tell them what we think about this passion of the Christ. And it was a wonderful time. And they were a little nervous that this would be anti-Semitic. And I happened at that time to be listening to a Jew on the radio named Michael Medved and he talked about the movie and he said, and he was a practicing devout Jew. And I I let them know about Michael Medved. None of them really knew who he was. And I said, even he is saying that this is not anti-Semitic at all. It's really focusing on Christ. And so that was an open door for us. And we spent about an hour or two there with them. And so these doors, they can present themselves. And we could have decided not to go to focus on the particular uh, tour that we were going to be on. Now, in deciding whether or not to take this opportunity, we had to ask ourselves, would we be doing this out of selfishness or would we be doing this for the benefit of others? And, of course, the answer was clear. And so when you come to an open door, if you're looking to walk through the door because of personal profit or benefit, you probably don't want to go through that. Now, it may result in that, but if you see that the benefit inures to others, that others are going to benefit far more than you might benefit. And this is in relation to God opening a door for us. And this is certainly in ministry. It could also be in business, which would lead to ministry, that type of thing. And it's not for business sake to gain for yourself. And so that's one of the things that we can use to decide whether or not we should go through an open door. And certainly for Paul, an open door was given to him to preach the gospel, and it was certainly for the benefit of another or others who were there. And God may open doors for us, and we may choose which one to accept. And there may be several doors. I know somebody who's trying to decide, well, do they go to Florida to minister, or do they go elsewhere? And, and which door should they walk through? And my particular view on that is, which one do you want to walk through? If everything else is equal and it's going to benefit people on either ministry uh, trek you take, which one should you take? I believe God gives us the right to choose. And whichever one we choose, God will say, that was the right one. And he does that by the desires of our heart as well. If we seek after him, he will give us the desires of our heart, not the things that we want like a Maserati or a Tesla or something like that. He will give us the actual desire that is on the inside. And that's what we should follow if everything else is lined up the way it's supposed to be. If we're asking God, if we're seeking counsel, all of those things. And we want to use this open-door principle for a job, for a move. When we retire, to have children, for those who are younger, to to get married to a certain person. Uh, God gives us the ability to choose, but God already knows which we're going to choose. And I dare say, from God's perspective, he has already chosen which one we're going to choose. From our perspective, we choose. And we'd say... Well, how can that be? Did God choose or did I choose? The answer is yes. God, God does both. How does that work out? I have no idea. But God is never taken by surprise. He doesn't say, 
I never would have thought that they would have chosen that door, but they, he doesn't do that. He already knows. He knows where humanity is heading. He actually directs where humanity is heading. And I do want to say this. I have seen over the years a few, if not many people, who decide to go through a door. And it's not because God has specifically told them to do so. And what I mean by that is I know of individuals, more than one, who has moved. And once they move, their faith is shipwrecked. They're no longer in fellowship. They didn't take that into consideration that maybe God didn't want you to go, but the door was open and you decided to go anyhow. And, and I have seen calamity come as a result of that. And it's not good. Or, for instance, for me, not, I'm not speaking for anyone else, I don't believe I have the ability to, quote-unquote, retire. After all, all those who retire, what do they do? They stop working so they can go get another job. Isn't that what happens most of the time? And I have seen that over and over and over. And if that's the case, that's wonderful. If God has called him to do that, that's wonderful. I, I looked in for myself. I've looked in the scripture and should I retire, you know, that type of thing. And, and I can't find it anywhere. I, I think we're supposed to wear out to where you can't anymore. And if you switch jobs, that's wonderful. That's great. That's good. But we have to have a purpose in this life. And if somebody is in the private sector and then they move into ministry of some sort, wonderful. That's good. But I think we do ourselves and God and the body of Christ a disservice if we, when we retire, we watch television, we make our nest, we vacation. And all that stuff, do that for a little while. Take a rest. That's good. I think you should do it with all your might. But then there comes a point where you say, okay, God, what do you want me to do now? Which direction do you want me to head? What is it that you have for me? Every believer has a task to fulfill in this life until we cannot. And that may be in the private sector. That may be in ministry. But God calls us to do something And we just want to make sure we know what that is. Now, it may be something grandiose. It may be something simple. It may be you develop a prayer ministry where you're really not going anywhere, but for hours a day you're praying. Or it could be that you're just calling up people and saying, how are you today? I want to encourage you. I want to make sure that things are going well for you. But to do nothing, I think we do a disservice to all those who I previously mentioned. So how do we know if it's God's will? First thing we do is pray. And for instance, for me, <clears throat> I, I love uh, binging. You guys know what binging is on shows? You, you find a particular show and I like no commercials and you can just go right through it and, and get a few of those in. I like that. Now, if I sat down and I did that all the time, how do I know if it's God's will that I do that? Well, the first thing I could do is pray. God, do you want me to just spend the time binging on programs? What do you think he's going to say? He's going to say, no, I don't want you doing that. And it's okay. We can enjoy life. We don't have to be just miserable through life. We can enjoy life. We are so blessed to live when we do. And, and then you ask yourself, with what you want to do, is it sin? Is it sin to do nothing? I would say it probably is sin to do absolutely nothing. And God wants us to do something. We also look to the word for guidance. Is there something in there that somebody else has done similar to what you are planning to do that may be a benefit to someone else? And what about seeking counsel? Proverbs 15 verse 22. Plans fail for lack of counsel, but with many advisors they succeed. And so you, you go and talk to somebody and say, hey, I'm thinking about doing this. What do you think? And you don't ask just anybody. You ask somebody that you respect spiritually. And of course, God would have been speaking to you at that time, and they can provide for you wisdom and insight if you should move forward. And then you want to use wisdom. And you say, God, give me wisdom if I should do this or not. Of course, we know that James says, if any of us lacks wisdom, God will provide for us all the wisdom we need to make the decision, as long as we ask. And so these open doors that may come to us and how we make our plans for the future, just keep in mind, 
it should always be based on the benefit to God and to others rather than personal benefit. Selfishness needs to just take a back seat. Now, uh, if somebody wrote this little, uh, this little thing right here, I'm going to read to you about making just rash, fast decisions. And it comes from a worldly perspective. It says, we're off to old Las Vegas. We're going to get married today. We pray, we pray, we pray, we pray that we made the right choice today. We pray that we made the right choice today because if we did not, we're going to pay. We pay, we'll pay, we'll pay, we'll pay, we'll pay. Those people who make the rash decisions just to, let's do this, yeah, let's, okay, yeah, let's go. And there's no thought given to it. There's no wisdom sought after. There's no counsel sought. And so another thing we can do is wait. We always feel that an opportunity is going to pass us up and we can't wait. Uh, if you have any stocks and a stockbroker is there and he calls you up, it's a hot deal. You, you need to go ahead and make the trade. Come on, make the trade. And he's, of course, going to benefit because of the trade. Well, patience is something that needs to rule. And also, Proverbs chapter 3, 5, and 6, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lead not to your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. So if he has given you an open door or open doors, let selflessness guide you. That would be the main theme. You must also step out before you truly know if it is the Lord that has opened the door for you to minister. Imagine that. You don't really know how it's going to turn out. And you've done everything properly. You've, you've done all the points that I just gave you where you're seeking after the Lord. You're looking into the word. You're praying about it. You're asking if, if it's sinful. You're trusting God and all that. You walk through and you're still with some trepidation going, going, did I make the right choice? And, and you're ministering to the Lord. Guess what? When you make the right choice, you're probably going to have trouble. And the trouble could be severe. Because those who live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution from the outside. Also doubts from the inside. Also Satan and the world. All of those things will come against you if you're supposed to make the proper move. And it's not until sometimes months or years later that you realize, yeah, I made the right move. I did the right thing at that point. And that's where a walk of faith comes in. Well, I'm just going to trust God that he's going to guide me. And the whole time, there were probably two angels beside you going, go ahead, yeah, keep walking forward. You go, maybe I should keep walking forward. And you walk forward, yeah, open that door. And maybe I should open that door. And you do that. There still may be trouble. Chances are there's going to be. But there's trouble in this life. That's what life is all about. So it's trusting in God that he will lead you to the end. Remember, he who began a good work will bring it to completion according to the book of Philippians. Now, <clears throat> going on, this door was open for Paul, and he went through it, and it brought two things for him. It brought him reception. People received what he had to offer them. And also, it appears some opposition. Imagine that. Verse 14 says, but thanks be to God who always leads us in triumphal procession in Christ and through us spreads everywhere the fragrance of the knowledge of him that we are to God, the aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. So this fragrance of Christ, when you go to somebody and you give them the gospel, and they're able to receive the wisdom from the word. And you can see understanding come to them. I think, you know, on a semi-regular basis, I get to talk to people outside the church. And I'm always looking for the opportunity to share Christ with them. Ask them if they know the Lord. Ask them if they're going to church. All of these things, I, I look for the opportunities. I always have that in the back of my mind when I meet somebody new. Is there going to be an opportunity here to, to share about Christ? And if this door opens up, it's usually the fragrant aroma of Christ that they're receiving because it's a blessing to them. But then there are those who consider it the smell of death. 
That's what verse 16 says. To the one, we are the smell of death. To the other, the fragrance of life. And who is equal to such task? And he's talking about himself. I'm, I'm not up to this task, but that's what he has been called to do is go out and give this gospel. So when we give the gospel, when we give a word of encouragement, when we give wisdom to others, it is either going to be received as something that is the aroma of Christ or the stench of death. I, I don't know about you guys, but there is this smell of death. And I'm sure you have smelled it. For instance, you ever have a uh, mouse die in your house or in the garage? And you walk out and you go, what is that smell? Now, we also, <clears throat> where we live, for years there was this crematorium across the street from us. Uh, Neptune Society, if you know where that is, by Jack in the Box. Right next to Jack in the Box is this crematorium. Not that there's any connection, but there, it's right next door. And, and what happened was their equipment began to fail. And when it failed, there would be this black plume of smoke, just as black as could be, would come out of this chimney. And guess what was due east? Our house. And so it would come up. Raise and just go straight to our house. We'd run and close the windows and close the doors. And it was the smell of death is what it was. It was, we knew what it was. And of course, they ended up getting shut down. I was actually at a hearing with that. And they shut it down. I think they're operating again, but they have perfected their equipment. We have no notice that anything awry or is awry there. But it's the smell of death. Or if you've smelled a carcass of an animal, uh, not just a mouse. We were on a job uh, a month or so ago, and all of us are standing around talking about the job, and all of a sudden we got this smell coming through, and we go, what is that? Well, we eventually found it was a dead rabbit. And this rabbit was making a just a reek at the smell that was everywhere around this area. We didn't know where he was. But we eventually found them, but all of us recognized it. And when you present the gospel to somebody who is perishing, that's what it smells like. They are offended by it. They don't like it. They try to run away from it. And Paul said when the door was open for him in Troas, he had both. He had those who received it as the aroma of Christ and those who considered it the stench of death. Those people are destined for destruction, but the ones who have the aroma of Christ, that that's what they receive, they have eternal life. In verse 17, Paul goes on and says, Unlike so many, we do not peddle the word of God for profit. On the contrary, in Christ, we speak before God with sincerity like men sent from God. And so there is this group of people that bring the gospel for profit. In other words, they have the nicest suits, the nicest cars, the nicest jets, the nicest homes around the world, and they use that for their personal benefit in building up, quote-unquote, the ministry. Now, there are those who have large ministries that they don't receive very much at all, and they don't seek to better themselves, and the ministries for personal sake, they give everything away but then there are those who seek the money for themselves i want to tell you that anybody who my personal belief anybody who seeks to become a multimillionaire off of the gospel is a false teacher i recently i was reading through the news i, I forget which uh, site i was on i was going through the news and every once in a while like you'll go to the end and then they'll have several advertisements that you can go look at uh, and they'll make you scroll through every page to see what the next one is. And it was the worth of preachers. And I thought, wow, I am interested in this one. So I clicked on it and I started going through all the pastors, the televangelists out there and how much they're worth. One of them was worth over $400 million. And I thought to myself, $400 million. By the way, it's, it's the one 
who rebuked the coronavirus that destroyed it through prayer. I don't think it was very effective, but he's worth $400 million. And, and there were others, $44 million and $2 million. And just millions and millions of dollars is what these individuals were worth. And I think they are not preaching the gospel sincerely. Now, if somebody said, well, what if the opportunity came for you? That you could be on television and gain lots of money. I wouldn't take the money. It's, if I had the chance to give the gospel out, I would give the gospel. But I wouldn't take the money. I, I wouldn't sit there and, uh, Patty, let's go ahead and move to um, a nice expensive city and get a nice 6,000 square foot house with a bowling alley and a theater in it and all of those things. Wouldn't you like to do that? Wouldn't that be great? And for me, it's stuff like that. I have to take care of that. And so I don't want it. I, I don't want anything that I have to be so concerned of in this life that it requires my time. And I don't want to have to pay others to take care of that. And if somebody says, well, you're providing jobs for people, that's nuts. I'd rather give them salvation than lots of money. And so there are those who peddle the word of God for profit to seek to line their own bank accounts. And that is contrary to the minister of Christ who goes out with sincerity. So those who give the gospel, now they do have the right to receive an income from the gospel as appointed in Scripture. Uh, and those who give the gospel have no right to become wealthy from the gospel. I don't mean that they need to be poor. I don't mean to say that they need to be like John the Baptist and only have camel's hair and eat grasshoppers. I, I'm not saying that. But I am saying, you know, Pastor Chuck used to always tell those who would go to the pastor's conferences that he put on that you need to live at the level of everybody else you're ministering to. And I thought that that was good insight, good wisdom uh, to follow. So as far as a conclusion, application of what's going on here before we receive communion, so far we have seen that Paul delivered something that was harsh to the people in the church of Corinth. It was difficult for him and for others. And it's the job of a minister of the gospel to encourage, to rebuke, to exhort, and to admonish. We know this from the book of Titus. He also expressed his love for them, but delayed his scheduled visit in order to spare them continued pain. He encouraged the church of Corinth to forgive a brother who had been disciplined. He desired that they forgive and restore him completely to fellowship. He placed emphasis on the unity of the body because Satan would use division, murmuring, gossip, and personal desire to disrupt what God is doing. And, and just a side note on this, especially during COVID, if somebody comes up to you, whether this ministry or another ministry, and they're saying things like, oh, or they're just complaining or murmuring about what's going on. They're not happy. They probably complain about Daryl because he's not, putting the stuff up right or something was a glitch. Of course, that never happens because he's a perfect uh, tech guy. Or, you know, it could be the worship. and The worship stinks and Kim's better and, and it's okay and, or Bill's better and, and it's okay and stuff like that. Or how come we don't have any donuts anymore? And, you know, it's, it's just not right that this has taken place and i got to talk to somebody about that. If you see that or you hear that going on, that's from the enemy himself. And you just need to be aware of it, that that is what has taken place. And also, Paul walked through an open door to give the gospel, and it's hard, or it had its intended effect. Some were willingly ready to accept it, and others reject it vehemently because it is the smell of death. And he let us know that the true minister of God will not use the ministry for profit or gain personally riches like televangelists that we know. Because Matthew says in 6.19, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so we can use these insights and provide for ourselves wisdom on how to live in this world and to make proper judgments and Lord willing, we will do so. So at this time, what we're going to do is we're going to receive communion. 
Kim will come back up and she'll begin playing a song and I'll say a few words uh, concerning the communion. But this is the time, if, if you need to say, Lord, you know, maybe on the issue of forgiveness, I didn't handle it quite right. Just ask the Lord, ask the Lord for wisdom and insight how to best respond or if amends need to be made, go back and make amends. Uh, it's a good time to just turn to the Lord and maybe just express thankfulness. But Lord, I'm, I'm so thankful for, for you saving me, for you reaching out to me, to bringing me into the fellowship of the saints. Or maybe there's something else, you, you have something on your heart that weighs heavy. Just turn to God during this time, because that's what communion is all about. The fact that God takes care of us, and he did so by providing himself a sacrifice. So as Kim begins to play the song, uh, if we could have the lights down in the middle... Remember to go from the outside up and receive the communion. Just grab one and go back to your seat and wait till we can participate in receiving it all together. In the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 11, of course it was the Corinthian church again, and they were having just a hard time getting the walk with the Lord right. They were listening to others who were coming in and instructing them in ways that were contrary to what they had learned from the Apostle Paul. And in this particular area as well, they were not doing it quite right, this receiving of the communion. It says in verse 17, In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. When you come together, it is not the Lord's supper you eat, for as you eat... Each of you goes ahead without waiting for anybody else. One remains hungry, another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or don't you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you for this? Certainly not. So they were getting together. They would have a a potluck, or that's what they wanted to call it. But they were all eating in individual groups, and they were not sharing fellowship. They were not sharing their food with each other. And one would go hungry and another one would be full and get drunk. And he goes on to say, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after he took, or excuse me, after supper, he took the cup saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so that is what we are doing by receiving communion. We are proclaiming the death of Jesus Christ and the subsequent forgiveness of sins that we are able to receive as a result And so we want to recognize this morning the body of Christ by taking the wafer. You can take the wafer out of the top of the cup there. By taking this wafer, we're saying, well, this is the body of Christ. He is the bread of life. And I don't mean in a literal sense. This is symbolic. Now, there are other traditions that say, no, this is actually the body of Christ, even though it doesn't look like it. And others that say, no, once you take it, it turns into the body of Christ. I believe those are... Uh, not valid doctrines, transubstantiation and consubstantiation is what they're called. I believe that we are just recognizing the body of Christ by taking this bread, which is symbolic of Jesus being the bread of life. And I think that that is the reality. And there's no way we could have life, sustaining life without bread, and specifically eternal life without the bread of life. So, Father, as we're holding on to this little wafer here that represents your body we know that you are the bread of life you are the one that sustains you are the giver of life and we thank you lord that you provided us this ultimate sacrifice where we don't have to do anything except for believe we thank you for your grace given to us your mercy even though you are just god the one that judges sin you have chosen to forgive us and for our sakes It's done freely. We owe you nothing for it except praise and honor. So, Father, we thank you for this. And as we take it, we worship you. In Jesus' name, take and eat.
And as you're holding the cup with the juice, the fruit of the vine in it, we know that there was no forgiveness of sins, no atonement for sins in the Old Testament without the shedding of blood. A life had to be given, some form of life. And we know that life is in the blood. And when Jesus poured out his blood on the cross, his life was poured out for us. And that's what was required in the Old Testament sacrificial system. But all of those systems pointed to Christ himself, who would be the ultimate sacrifice, the perfect sacrifice. That is why there was only one perfect sacrifice necessary for the remission of sins on our part. And when we take this juice, when we drink of the fruit of the vine, we are remembering the blood of Christ that was spilled out on the cross. And I think he wanted it to be the blood to see what kind of price actually had to be paid. It wasn't something pretty. It wasn't something that we would look at and say, oh, that's wonderful. It is something that was gruesome that had to be done, and that's how bad our sin is. And so, Father, as we hold this cup, and we remember the blood of Jesus being poured out on the cross for the remission of sins. We give you thanks. But help us to recognize, Lord, what we have been forgiven of and what we have been saved from. Eternal damnation and separation from you. So we give you thanks, Lord, and we worship you as we take it. In Jesus' name, take and drink. Please stand and pass your cups towards the center so the ushers can pick those up. And just a final word. I want to encourage you this morning, all the failings and problems that the Church of Corinth experienced, we are learning all of those things to avoid. We are learning the purposes of the gospel And the the teaching in the epistles is to help us reflect the life of Christ. But if we're not in fellowship, if we're not in the Word, if we're not listening to other messages, if we're not studying to show ourselves approved, it will end up for nothing. We will not perform those tasks which God has long ordained for us to fulfill. So my encouragement to you is be a disciple. Follow Him. Sacrifice whatever he asks you to for the sake of the kingdom. Not because I say anything, but because the Lord asks you to. And may you be encouraged with the fact that we have a home that waits for us. Where there is no pain, sorrow, suffering, no COVID-19, no diseases, no death. And every tear will be wiped away. So this is our hope. Our blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. May God bless you as we sing our closing song.